Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, and today my guest is Dr. Richard Hill. He is an associate professor the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, and he is board certified in both internal med and nutrition. So we get a two-for-one episode today with Dr. Hill. Dr. Hill, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Um, well, you know, I always ask veterinarians how they became veterinarians, and you and I discussed how long, you know, and an arduous a journey it could be and how much it could take to describe it. So I'm going to do rapid-fire questions for you. Where did you do your undergraduate degree? Uh, University of Cambridge. And if you guys are listening, you should hear a nice accent coming from Dr. Hill today. Dr. Hill, where are you from? Uh, I grew up in England, but I was born in Malaysia, of all places. What was your major? Or do they call it a major in England? Um, In England, it's slightly different from the United States in that um, you basically go to veterinary school from uh, as an undergraduate. And so it's a slightly longer course. It's five or six years. Um, But you start off as a 17, 18-year-old and um, you do an undergrad... I did an undergraduate degree in uh, medical sciences and then you go over to the um, veterinary school and you complete... So I've actually got two undergraduate degrees technically and then you get a master's and a PhD afterwards. I did my PhD um, here at the University of Florida. I bet a lot of my younger students are thinking they want to go over to England to get started on their vet degree a little bit earlier now. Okay, so you have a bachelor's, a veterinary degree, a master's, a PhD that you did at UF, and then you became board certified in internal med and then nutrition? Um, I initially worked in, after I finished my university degree and qualified as a veterinarian, I went and worked at a practice just north of London um, for five years. Okay. And um, when I first started that practice, in that practice, I threw all my books in a corner and said, I'm done with studying. I've had enough. Yes. And uh, then I sort of, uh, after about six months, I sort of picked them up again and I started to read them a lot. And eventually I decided that I wanted to get some further education at that time. It wasn't available in the United Kingdom. So um, I was really very lucky. I managed to uh, score a job here at the, um, uh, do a res- I would score a job as a resident at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay, so yeah. you did not have to do an internship. Um, at that, no, I managed to be, get lucky. Nowadays, you couldn't do that. You would have to do an internship before a residency. But I was lucky I did. A, they were in desperate need of residency <laughs> um, at the time. And perhaps I can tell the audience about the story of veterinary medicine because there have been big changes over time. And when I first started, um, there wasn't that much... Um, money in veterinary, small animal veterinary medicine, but we had an outbreak of parvovirus, mm-hmm. and that um, requ- made a huge need for veterinarians to vaccinate dogs mm-hmm. all across the world. 
Oh. Um, so, um, and when I first got my first job at North of London, they were literally queuing up round the street, down the street, to get their dogs vaccinated wow. for this terrible disease that was killing dogs. Oh my goodness! And um, so that was one of the reasons why I was first employed. But it had an effect of injecting a lot of money into veterinary medicine as mm. a consequence. Um, so there was a big, as a consequence of that, the, the small animal practice was, were able to um, expand. Oh. And we, that expansion followed on further um, to the extent that suddenly internal medicine became a more viable option. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was lucky that I joined, I started to be interested in internal medicine just as internal medicine was expanding. So I was sort of lucky in that respect. And Internal medicine has expanded a tremendous much more, a lot more, and now there's a lot, lot more money in the business of veterinary medicine. And um, you should remember that this is a business. Yes. You know that that we 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 all get into it because we love animals and we want to work with animals. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that. To you know, the reality is that when you become a veterinarian, um, you, you're going to have want to have children, you're going to want to put them through school, and you, you need to live. And um, getting to be a veterinarian is an expensive business. So um, you have to come up with a plan which allows you to have good financial resources at the end of it. Absolutely. And I encourage everyone to listen to our podcast that we have um, about financial literacy and understanding finances and veterinary medicine. And Dr. Hill is absolutely right. It is a business and you should treat it that way. You know, you can be tenderhearted towards the animals, but you should be shrewd when it comes to the business side of it. So you mentioned internal medicine, obviously, and that's what you do. Will you tell us what is internal medicine? Um, I liken it to when you go to the doctor yourself. You you probably got taken to the doctor by your your mum or your dad, um, and um, they you went to a general practitioner, somebody who was knew about you in, in all the the quirks of your life and all that sort of thing. Um, and they, if you had a, a cold or something like that, then you would go to them. Um, if the problem was a little bit more serious and the doctor didn't know what was going on, they would probably send you to a specialist. Um, so that's the same thing in veterinary medicine. The, for most purposes, um, if your animal is sick, you go to your local practitioner. Um, but if your unfortunate your dog is unfortunate and has a more complicated disease and the, your local practitioner doesn't know what exactly is going on, then they would send you to a specialist. And um, there are lots of different specialties um, for different organ systems in the body. Internal medicine um, is uh, does a lot of organ systems. So we are actually the next step up from the um, from the general practitioner, and we would then potentially ask a neurologist to look at your dog as well if we weren't comfortable dealing with it. But a lot of diseases involve a lot of organ systems, so we're the guys who look after a lot of organ systems. So we work on, um, for example, gastrointestinal disease. Your local practitioner if would probably deal with an acute onset of um, diarrhea or vomiting, but if it drags on for too long, then we would, um, you would, he would potentially send you to um, an internal medicine specialist to try and work out why 
the diarrhea and vomiting is persisting. Um, we w- would also look at cases where the kidneys might be involved or where the um, blood system might be involved. So if your dog was anemic um, or your cat, um, uh, we had a cat the other day that had liver disease, for example. Um, and so we they get sent to us because we have different tools that we can use to try and sort out what's going on. And we might get a case sent to us which has neurological disease and intestinal disease and kidney disease, and our job is to try and sort that out ah. and, if necessary, get other specialists involved if they if we feel that they need to be involved. So an internist kind of needs to know a, a lot about everything. Uh, pretty much, yes. yes. And you all need to be good with other people in case you need to get the neurologist on board in communicating the issues and collaborating with them. That's correct. Is there a specific organ system that you like the most working with? Um, yes, it's the intestine. My interest is a gastroenterology and uh, the liver and uh, things that uh, are associated with the intestine, the pancreas, and the liver. And if a dog had parvo, that would be that area? Uh, yes, that's correct. Parvovirus is an acute infection of the in, uh, small intestine, um, and it really damages the whole intestine. So the animal gets very sick and the bacteria in the intestine leave the um, intestine and go out into the blood and cause an infection. So usually that would initially be treated by your local vet because it's an acute disease. But because they often need to be hospitalized, Mm. they would get transferred to the emergency, an emergency service, which could manage it initially. um, But then they would probably put it in our hands um, for the long-term management of that. Okay. It's almost full circle since Parvo, that outbreak of Parvo kind of brought more uh, money and highlighting veterinary medicine, and now you work with all those gastrointestinal issues, so it's full circle, I think. Uh, Okay, so you're an internist, you work with other veterinarians, all these different organ systems. Um, I'm assuming, you know, you see dogs and cats. Do you ever see any other types of animals in internal med? Um, When I was in general practice, we saw quite a lot of other animals, and um, when I was first trained, we got very little education in 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 those other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason we see a lot of those things is because um, uh, boys and girls like to have things like guinea pigs and stuff Little like that. Little pocket pets. Little pocket pets, all right? And we actually looked after a big um, bird collection in a local um, local bird collection. Mm. Um, I actually, one of the things that you can do when you're a general practitioner is go and get continuing education. Yeah. So um, we're required as veterinarians to keep up with things. And so I specifically went and did some courses in pocket pets and things like that. Um, now I'm so specialized that I don't really do so much of that. Mm-hmm. But we have a very strong uh, zoo and wildlife program here at the University of Florida, and they do occasionally consult with us, mm-hmm. just like we would consult with a neurologist. They will sometimes come to us and ask our advice about how to do some things. And I have uh, one of the techniques we use is in internal medicine is endoscopy. Mm. That's where you use a flexible camera that we run the scope down into the in, in, into the stomach and then into the intestine, and it enables us to look at what's going 
going on in the stomach and look at take samples from the inside of the intestine to try and work out what's going on and um, I've done. We have done that. We do that fairly often in turtles, and I've oh, and, and we've done it in a tiger and things like that. That's monkeys, cool. Monkeys. We do those sort of things. So, but we we do that on, um, as a f- sort of co- in consultation with the people who are working in zoo and wildlife. Let's dive into nutrition. So you are board certified in nutrition as well. What does nutrition entail? And it all sort of tied in together because the intestine is very much involved in um, transferring food into yes, the body. Yes. And nutrition also involves what happens inside the body and the metabolism of that food mm-hmm. once it gets inside the body. So they're, they're very much related. Yes. Okay. So that makes sense. And I know that you teach our, one of our nutrition courses at VetMed. So... When we say nutrition, we're talking what the animals need to eat to be healthy. Are we talking calculations of the right amount of food to give them, weight loss, weight gain? What are some of the key parts of nutrition that our students end up learning about? Um, Well, there's two courses I teach at the University of Florida. One is a more basic nutrition course, which is about what normal animals need to eat. Um, you get can get some information about that as an undergraduate. If you do an animal science degree or a zoology degree, um, there's some really good courses which teach you about metabolism and biochemistry, mm. and they're really important before you get to do before you get into veterinary school because that's the background on which nutrition is based. Mm-hmm. Um, then the basic nutrition would be how do you feed your normal animals? We do that, teach that as a fresh to freshman, and then um, as you move through your courses at the University of Florida, you you start getting into the clinic, and um, we teach almost every patient that comes through the clinic needs some nutritional advice. Mm. Um, whether it's coming in for uh, orthopedic surgery, a lot of those animals would do better if they was they weren't as fat. <laughs> yes. So we teach uh, how to deal with that, uh-huh. and as you say, how to make them less fat. Okay. Um, we also um, uh, it's you come in for kidney disease. There's really good data that says if you adjust the diet of a dog or a cat with kidney disease, they live twice as long. Is it mostly based on breed or is each animal individual? Well, just as I need to tell you that um, I'm a big fat guy oh, and no. I don't need I don't need very much food. On the other hand, my uh, my lots of other people are skinny and they need a bit more food. So there's there's a certain aspect that some dogs need more food, some cats need less food. Okay. Yeah, there's quite a bit of variability. Okay. Um, so, um, yes, you have to treat each, each one as an individual, and you do that yourself with your own animals, I'm sure. If your dog is getting fat, you know, it needs to leave, lose, feed less. Yes. And if you it's getting skinny, you know, it needs to eat more, you know. So you do the same thing at home. We do the same thing. What are some of the noticeable differences in, like, something that comes to mind when you think of noticeable differences in certain breeds of dogs or cats? What's one of the examples? 
The classic example would be a species difference between mm -hmm. cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, cats are specialist carnivores. Okay, They're, dogs have uh, can eat a more, greater variety of foods, mm -hmm. and because cats are specialist carnivores, they've adapted to use a certain type of diet, and they adapted really to eat birds and mice. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the consequences of this is they have a requirement for an amino acid called taurine. So and does all cat food have taurine in it? All cat food has to have lots of taurine okay. in it, um, whereas dog food doesn't need to have taurine in it. And wow. so um, and if you, your cat doesn't have enough taurine, then the heart stops working. Okay, so everyone check that cat food and make sure there's plenty of taurine in there. I think it's probably very important that veterinarians weigh in on, weigh in, get it guys? We're talking about nutrition. Uh, weigh in on cat food and dog food. And I know that some veterinarians serve as representatives of certain brands of you know cat and dog food. And I think now would be a fun time to talk about some of the controversy that I hear going on in the nutrition world, a lot of like raw diets. I'm sure you see some interesting client opinions about food. What do we think about the raw diets that they're on? Well, most veterinarians that you talk to are interested in nutrition strongly advocate giving cooked food, not raw food. Okay. Um, uh, the reason we advocate this is because raw food um, that you buy from the store um, is likely to have pathogens as included in it. So um, uh, there's a reason why your mum or dad cooks food. Sure. Um, it's basically to kill off the bacteria that could potentially cause gastric uh, stomach upset. It makes um, sense. Um, and the same is true for dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. People sort of say, well, dogs and cats have better capability of holding off those bacteria. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not strictly true. Mm -hmm. All right. And there, there is an additional risk um, that if they become infected with bacteria from the meat or the vegetables or whatever, mm -hmm. then they can pass that infection on to the people handling the animal. Oh, zoonotic diseases. Yes. So salmonella, for example. Sure. All right. Um, there's, you've all heard of outbreaks of salmonella and things like that. All right. Well, um, the problem with salmonella, when a cat gets salmonella, it excretes salmonella in its saliva. And we all know that cats lick themselves to keep themselves clean. Mm. So they then transfer that salmonella over, all over their oh, coat. Oh, wow. So you don't really want to have a cat that's infected with salmonella. And what's the best way of stopping that happening? It's cooking the food. Sure. So what about grain-free diets? I've heard a lot about that on the news, that some folks are wanting to do no grain for their, I think specifically dogs. What do we think about that? I think we need to talk more about nutrients and less about ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, everybody worries about whether the food's cooked or whether it's not cooked. Um, what we should be concerned about is are they getting enough taurine or are they not getting enough taurine? Mm -hmm. Are they getting enough vitamins or are they not getting enough vitamins? Are they getting enough protein or are they not getting enough protein? Mm -hmm. Where they get that protein from or those nutrients from is less important than that they get them into the body where they can be used. Okay. And um, unfortunately, advertisers tend to focus on ingredients mm. because it's a good way of trying to sell your pet food. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue with 
grain-free diets is that there's been some concern that some diets are associated with causing uh, heart disease. And I told you earlier that taurine, if you don't take enough in, then your heart doesn't work Mm -hmm. right. Dogs need taurine. They need taurine just like dog we do um, to help their their heart function. It's just whereas cats can't manufacture enough, dogs should be able to manufacture enough. Mm-hmm. Um, what we suspect is that some of these diets don't have enough of the building blocks mm-hmm. of amino acids that they need to turn into taurine. Personally, I think it's Probably there are some grain-free diets which are fine, mm-hmm. and there are some grain-free diets which are not fine. Okay. And so um, it's less important to worry about whether it's grain-free or not. Yeah. Um, has it been through feeding trials? Is it cause? Is it a diet that is, or a particular batch of food that is causing this problem, or is there is it, is it something else? try to think about preparing the pre-vet students for their interviews and going to vet school. So if you were asked the question, students, what do you think about grain-free diets? You could quote Dr. Hill and say it's less about the ingredients and more about the nutrition. Yeah, the nutrients. So that's, it's great. And then it'll be less polarizing, I think, for folks to be like, oh, grain-free or no, we need it to be all, um, have grains in it. It's like, no, Let's look at the ingredients. Let's do some trials. Let's see what's working and what doesn't work. But students, be careful about choosing one side or the other before we know all of the information. So that's very helpful. Dr. Hill, what advice do you have for pre-vet students trying to become veterinarians? Um, It is a fantastic job. I love my job, but I and I've loved every part of it. So when I was a private practitioner, I loved working with people. Um, it was fantastic to meet people on a regular basis and be part of the community and be... Um, so one of the things is you really have to be a per- people person, mm-hmm. all right? Because whatever walk of life you're in, you've got a people person. Um, it's a, a job where every day you see something new, but you do get... Um, paid to do stuff that you're really good at. And so every job has some repetition. Mm -hmm. And you need to show that you're fun to work with. We have to um, evaluate people who want to move on from being a private practitioner to do an internship and a residency. And we really look for three things. Um, We we look for people who can work hard. Mm -hmm. We look for people who are nice to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we look for people who know something. Hmm. And in order, as you move through your career, what you know is going to be less important than being able to work hard and being nice. True. And so one of the things I worry about is with some of our newer students is um, that they spend, they don't necessarily spend enough time um, with other people. Yes. And talking to people and um learning the skills of personal communication. Mm-hmm. And being a veterinarian is all about 
being able to interact with people and work with people and and to be fun to be with within the workplace as well as outside the workplace. In England, when I was growing up, we still do, we all go to the pub and everybody thinks that's all about drinking. No, it's all about talking to each other. Mm-hmm. We don't actually drink that much. We just go to hang out with our friends and and talk and have get communicate so try and do some of that as well oh such good advice i really appreciate the fact that as you go on it's less about what you know and more about how you treat the people that you're around well thank you for being on the podcast today i'm glad we got to learn about two specialties Uh, students homework obviously start looking into uh, different nutrition studies and what's going on with nutrition i'm alex avellino and we'll talk to you soon